You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess what we just sang, that you are indeed great. Your faithfulness, your steadfast love, your unfailing mercy. We exalt in it and in you. We ask as we come to your word that you'd continue in our hearts by your spirit, worship, that you'd receive praise and glory and adoration and thanksgiving that's due you. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us from your word everything that we need, that we might glorify your name and take joy in you and in your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we come and we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You can have... A seat. Uh, Good morning. Excited to be with you today. We are um, actually really excited as we begin a a new series for the next number of weeks in the small New Testament uh, Testament book of Jude. So you can grab your Bibles and make your way to Jude. Uh, Some of our strike team will be coming around. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and they can get one to you. Jude is the last epistle, the last letter, right before the book of Revelation. So if you get to the index, you've gone too far, back up, and you'll find your way to Jude. And I think it'll become more clear as we work our way through this letter over the next number of weeks. But I believe this is both a timely and a necessary piece of Scripture Not any more necessary than the rest of the Bible, just maybe timely, but particularly for the church of Jesus Christ at this time in history. And I pray, my prayer is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will be deeply formational for us as a church on mission together as we go about the business that we're called to of gospel proclamation, of disciple making right here and right now. Now, as you find your way to the book of Jude, you'll notice it's not very long. It takes up about a page in most of your Bibles, maybe onto the back side of that front page in some of them, like it does mine. And because it's a, it's a shorter letter, for the next uh, five weeks or so, only 25 verses, but we're going to do, uh, do this where we're going to read the whole letter every week so we can see the text or the verses that we're looking at in the broader context. So, with that, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Um, it'll be on the screen as well. We're going to read through the entire letter of Jude. It doesn't take that long, and I'm a slow reader. So here we go. Uh, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning, the letter of Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, 
the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, today, you might look at these 25 verses and go, did you say five weeks, Jake? That's not a lot. Today, we're going to look at two verses. And really, we're going to spend about 75% of that time looking at one verse. I promise they won't all be like this, but today will be. The first two verses of the book of Jude serve as not only an introduction to his letter, but also as an introduction for us to these next number of weeks as we pick the letter apart. Here's how the letter starts. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So right at the beginning, we have our author. His name is Jude, and he tells us two more things about him by way of his relationship to others. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I'm a servant of Jesus, the one who is God's chosen Messiah. I'm his servant, and I'm the brother of James. We're going to tackle the second one first. Who is James, and why do we care? Now, he doesn't give a last name. He just says James. So this must be a James who would be well-known and pretty obvious to anyone who would read this letter. Now, there are at least three well-known Jameses in the New Testament. At least, James, the brother of John, who was an apostle of Jesus. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also an apostle of Jesus. And there was James, who was not an apostle, but this is who scholars believe is the author of this book of James uh, that we have in the New Testament, brother of Jude, who doesn't refer to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, as many of the apostles do. Instead, like Jude, refers to himself as a servant of Christ. So James and Jude are brothers. Here's, here's what we know about James. James is the, is the same author of the book of James. It's right after the book of Hebrews. You have this letter from James. James is also likely one of the 500 witnesses who had seen the risen Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this, For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, when Paul was writing this, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. James is witness to the resurrected Christ. He saw proof of the resurrection from the dead. This same James is also identified as the primary leader, the principal elder, if you will, over the church in Jerusalem. So as the church expands and the gospel goes out, leaders are raised up. This James, who has a brother named Jude, is identified as one of the key leaders at the church in Jerusalem. History, tradition, tell us that James, this James, would be martyred. He'd be killed for his faith in Jesus by being thrown off the precipice of the temple. Literally thrown off the top of the building. But he didn't die. So then they just threw rocks at him until he did die. That's how it's, tradition tells us James was killed, stoned to death. 
And according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, James is also the full biological son of a woman named Mary and a man named Joseph, which means that James is the half-brother of Jesus himself. Half-brother because they share a, in, a mother in Mary who gave birth to them both. And while James has other brothers who were biological sons of Joseph, distinct from Jesus, who was not conceived by human means, but was conceived in the virgin womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed says it like this, For us and for our salvation, he, Jesus, came down from heaven and became incarnate, made in flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. So Jesus was incarnated in the womb of Mary while she and Joseph were betrothed. If you remember the story we often read at Christmas, and rather than just kind of break off the relationship quietly, Joseph's like, hey, it's still, still early in this thing. Maybe I can just kind of like put her away quietly. An angel of the Lord, uh, Gabriel, comes to Joseph and says, hey, you're not going to do that. You're going to raise this child as your own, and Joseph does just that. And after Jesus was born... Mary and Joseph would have continued like any married couple would to follow the mandate given to Adam and Eve to multiply and be fruitful and by God's grace fill the earth. And they did. Now as an aside, there's a doctrine held in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox teaching that Mary remained a virgin in perpetuity. But there is nowhere in Scripture that supports that. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's virgin womb, and she remained a virgin until the birth of Jesus, meaning she was not physically intimate with Joseph. But afterwards, every indication tells us that Mary and Joseph were a faithful, God-fearing married couple who would participate in the normal marriage relationship. I will leave it at that. And Scripture tells us they had four sons together, James Joseph, Simon, and Judah, or the Greek version of his name, Judas. And you'll see in the New Testament a handful of places. You have Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic languages and culture kind of all mixed together. So you'd often have different kind of names depending on the context of, of where that name was being used. So our Jude, now moving off of my brother James to Jude, our Jude is the Judah, or Judas, who's the brother of James and one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. Now, as an aside, why Jude and not Judah in the Hebrew? Or why not go by Judas, as he might be known in Roman-occupied territories? Well, Jude is just a variation of the name, so it's not that far-fetched. It's not that random. Further, it's very possible that there was somewhat of an avoidance of going by the name Judas at the time. You wouldn't want to necessarily be confused with the other Judas, Judas Iscariot, who was the betrayer of our Lord, right? You can imagine, uh, post-resurrection, the name Judas probably falls off the map of most first century family baby lists. I mean, how many post-World War II German babies were named Adolf, right? That's the, that's the cultural context. Marty and I kind of joked about that this week, but there's probably reality there. I didn't look up the data from the 50s in Germany, but I'm guessing it's probably lower. Likely what's happening is something similar here where 
Jude is identifying himself as a unique person in the story for maybe lots of reasons. So, so here's what we know about Jude, right? It, if he's the brother of James and James is the half-brother of Jesus, what does that mean? Do the math. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't refer to him as that. He doesn't name drop. He says, the servant of Jesus Christ. And, and here's why this is important. You don't have to turn there, but we find a clue in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Jesus is going about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here, this is Jesus' brother speaking to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples might also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. These are the words of his family. And then John adds, for, they, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. They did not believe that he was who he claimed to be. They did not believe, John tells us in John 7, they did not believe that Jesus was God's Messiah. And they didn't understand that if he really was who he was claiming to be, why wasn't he telling people about it? Why was he so quiet about it? He should be making himself known because this is what people do. Instead, he hangs out with unknown fishermen and disliked tax collectors. What is wrong with him? The reality is James and Jude did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, probably until after the resurrection, when Jesus appears first to his disciples and then to over 500 witnesses. And here's why this is important. Because Jesus, crucified and risen again, changes everything. Literally everything. And this is a small but, but not insignificant reality. I don't want us to forget it, because we'll see it at the end of this letter as well. Jesus turns skeptics into saints. That's what he does. Jude goes from, I don't believe you, to I will serve you until I die. That's what the gospel does. And so tradition tells us Jude becomes somewhat of a, of a traveling minister, a traveling teacher. He's not necessarily ministering in a particular city or to a particular church. And at least in this letter, he seems to be writing broadly to Christians as a whole. Finally, a last two bits of context, and then we'll get into our verses. Jude was probably written in the mid to late 60s, give or take, AD. And like the book of Philemon, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jude doesn't introduce a whole lot of like new, complex theological ideas, although there are a couple of sections of Jude that will need a little extra work, and we'll get to those in terms of their biblical and historical significance. But rather, Jude is an exhortation. An exhortation is a challenge and an encouragement. It's both of those things together. So, so our big idea for this whole series for the next five weeks is this. Here's the big idea for the next five weeks. Jude is a call for Christians to contend for and keep the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Jude calls Christians to reject everything false and to hold fast to their faithful God. 
Christians keep the faith as they are kept by God. I know that's three sentences and one idea, but just I'm going to say it again. Jude is a call for Christians to contend for and keep the faith that is once and for all has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude calls Christians to reject everything false and hold fast to their faithful God. Christians keep the faith as they are kept by God. And this big idea comes from what I think is the key verse. We'll dive into it a little bit more next week, but the key verse for all 25 verses of this letter is verse 3. Because Jude tells us why he's writing this. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Essentially, I had another plan. I was going to write to you something else. Instead, I found it necessary to write, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's an exhortation, an urging to contend for the faith. The word contend means fight. So, so the purpose of Jude writing this is to urge Christians to fight properly and well and with humility and mercy, but to fight for their faith. Fight to preserve the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Fight to preserve the truth that the gospel is the message that God is proclaiming in the world for the advancement of his kingdom and to the praise of his glory. And it's a caution to be aware that there are wolves who have crept in Jude says, amongst the church, they're already here, he says, whose theology on the outside might seem, you know, kind of fits, but who are really out for personal gain and their end is destruction. So his doxology at the end is essentially holding fast to God who holds fast to us. And this is why I said I think a book like Jude at this time is both necessary and helpful for us. Because Jude is writing this some 2,000 years ago. But if we're honest, it's something that the church has needed, has wrestled with and struggled with since its beginning. And it is still a reality for us today. It is necessary for us to receive Jude's challenge to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. We need to hear it and we need to heed it, do something about Jude's call to Content. Because God, in his divine sovereignty, has placed you here, in this place and this time. He's placed you in this community. He's placed you in this body. He's caused you to be swimming about in this culture that we're all swimming in. God has placed you here as his disciple, like Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus. And what's important here as we get into these first couple of verses is Jude doesn't start with methodology. He doesn't say, here's 12 tools to fight off wolves in the culture. He doesn't open with a list of popular heresies. And he doesn't name names right away like, here's all the false teachers you should avoid. Although, we'll get into some of that. It'll become really clear how to identify false teaching and what it means to shoot at wolves and how to love wayward sheep and pursuit of truth as we work our way through Jude for these next numbers of weeks. But what Jude does to open this letter is he anchors his challenge, his exhortation, he anchors it first and foremost to a Christian's gospel identity. 
So our focus this morning from these two verses, mostly just one verse, is this, that who we are anchors what we're called to do. Who we are is the anchor to what we are called to do. So more than just a really long introduction today, which I've already given you, I want to take a few minutes and unpack this treasure. There are a couple of of fundamental and foundational truths that anchor us, and they're all found in verse 1. Here's what Jude says. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you who are called, who are beloved, and who are kept. So I want to follow Jude's lead here and remind us to consider this is essentially what it means to be a Christian. So that when we get to the challenges the calls to fight, to contend for your faith, to hold fast to the truth of God's word in a culture that would rather create its own truth. That those things are anchored not to willpower, not to clever arguments, not by being associated with the right or the wrong people, but that call and that challenge and that faith that we exercise in contending for the truth would be anchored to the undeniable power and authority of God and not ourselves. Because who we are anchors what we are called to do. So let's look at this briefly. Jude says this first. Because who we are anchors what we are called to do, let me ask this question. What does it mean that Christians are called? To those who are called, Jude says. Called means chosen, invited. Jude is saying... Your salvation and your identity as a disciple of Jesus means this. It was God's idea and it was God's initiative. You are called. Something outside of you is at work. Think about it this way. For those who are awake and want to raise their hands, how many teenagers do we have in the room? You can include college students, you can raise your hands too because... One, that's, that's a Venn diagram that overlaps at least for a couple years, and that's fine. And how many of you sleep really, really soundly? Like once you're out, you are out, right? You're not a light sleeper. My wife can attest. Um, she was just sitting here. She's gone now. My wife can attest. I can fall asleep usually in like two minutes, and I will sleep hard until the next morning. We could have kids in our room standing next to our bed. Or flushing the toilet in the bathroom that's like attached. They can climb in bed right next to me and kick me. And I'm like, Don't, doesn't matter, I'm out. I would likely stay asleep and maybe you're like that. And if that's you, or maybe you know someone like that, what does it take to wake someone up who sleeps that deeply? Right? Someone has to come in, usually mom or dad, and say, yo, time to get up. Or they play loud music, or they, I wanted to learn the trumpet just to wake up my teenagers, and I haven't done that yet. I still have some who aren't teenagers yet, so maybe I'll still do that. Right? And then from your slumber, what do you do? You who are hard sleepers like me, you like rub your face, and you're like, what is happening right now? Right? What time is it? Your sleep, someone has to come in and probably loudly tell you to get out of bed. Get up. Here's a biblical illustration. 
Jesus is telling his disciples they have to go back again to Judea because their friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Which is a nice way of saying Lazarus has died. So they arrive outside the village, John chapter 11. And when they get there, they find that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. By the time we get to verse 38 of John chapter 11, Jesus comes to the tomb and tells those who are around to remove the stone from the entranceway to the tomb. And Jesus calls to Lazarus a dead man who's been dead four days, who Jesus is warned, hey, if you remove the, the door from the tomb, it's probably going to smell because he's been dead now for a while. And so Jesus calls to a dead man and says, Lazarus, come out. In verse 44 of John 11, we read that the man who had died came out, still wrapped in grave linens. Jesus calls Lazarus from physical death to physical life. And this is what Jesus does spiritually for every one of his disciples. Every one. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. You were dead. Verse 5, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, probably the best two words in the entire Bible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You were dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And if you are a Christian, you were called from death to life. And this is only by the sovereign mercy and love of God were you made alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to how Paul describes himself. He says, Paul called, there's the same word, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So Paul's acknowledging, I didn't call myself to be an apostle. I didn't put my name in the list like, ooh, I'd like to be one. I don't title myself or name myself. God did this. By the will of God, he has called me as his messenger. Verse 2, Paul writes, And to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified meaning set apart, made holy. Here's how Paul describes those who are set, set apart, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see the parallel? Paul says, I was called to be an apostle, God's idea, God's initiative, to all those who are called, same word, to be saints together. God's idea, God's initiative. We aren't saved because we were smart enough and we figured it out. We aren't saved because we can do enough good things that counter our bad things. And so when God looks at us, he goes, you're at least a plus one on the good side. Welcome. It's not how this works. We are saved because of God's mercy in calling us out of darkness and death and into light and life. The consistent testimony of the scriptures from beginning to end is that God is the one who calls people from death to life. Faith is a gift from God. 
And Jude says, this is who you are. To you who are called. It's the first anchor for us here. Here's the second. Because who we are anchors what we are called to do. We have to ask, what does it mean to be beloved? Very simply, it means this. If you are in Christ Jesus, it means you are loved. Period. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. He goes to the Jordan River, and he's baptized by by John, who was the, the forerunner, the one who was to come before the Messiah. Jesus goes down into the water, and he comes up, and as he comes up, the sky splits open, and everyone around knows something weird is happening, and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. The Father calls the Son beloved. And in 1 John, chapter 3, John writes this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. What kind of love? Love that makes enemies into children. 1 Peter, chapter 2, Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you who have been Christians for a long time need to hear this this morning. You are loved. And not because of anything you've done. Often in spite of it, you are loved because you are in Christ. Because this is not merely a love that kind of pats you on the head and says, you're good enough, you're strong enough. This is not a love that puffs up your bruised ego and just tries to fill your self-esteem tank a little bit. No, this love says, I see you in the depths of your sin, I see you in your brokenness, I see you in your shame and your grief, and because I love you, I'm calling you out of the dark and into the light, that you might be free from your burdens of sin and shame. That's repentance. That you might walk in the light. That's faith. It's not a love that just approves of who you are. It's a love that makes us into something new. It's conforming us to the image of Jesus And Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. So if you belong to Jesus, then when the Father looks at you, he sees who? His beloved son. And as his beloved children, he's making us more like his beloved son, Jesus. And just like it's possible for us to be sure of our calling, we can be sure and confident in the love of God for us so that we can proclaim, along with Paul, that we are more than conquerors through him, through Jesus who loved us. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Inseparable. 
This is what it means to be beloved of God. Jude's saying, to you who are called and to you who are beloved. You need those anchors. And third, because who we are anchors what we are called to do. What does it mean that we are kept? This anchor is not detached from the first two. Just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 8, before Paul writes about all the assurance we just talked about, that nothing will be able to separate us from God's love, Paul writes this, and we know, verse 28 of Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is, God calls according to his own purpose, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you remember what John said, First John? Great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, adopted as beloved sons with Christ as our brother and God as our Father. Paul continues, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Pastor John Piper, in his book, Providence, calls this verse, Romans 8, 29 and 30, the chain of God's promise. I love that. Here's, here's Piper. He says, the point of this golden chain is this. No link breaks. Nobody falls out. Everybody foreknown one, every foreknown one becomes a predestined one. Every predestined one becomes a called one. Every called one becomes a justified one. Every justified one becomes a glorified one. Few things could be clearer or more glorious. Assurance, confidence, stability, courage. Now, I like John Piper as much as the rest, next guy. But even better, here's what Jesus has to say in John 10. Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. <laughs> my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. It is in sovereign and undeserved love that God calls, and those whom God calls in love, he keeps. Now, you might wonder why these three anchors, why deep dive here on these three words? Because when we read the challenge from Jude, to try to discern truth from error. When we get into the reality of, I mean, Jude gets really close without naming names, to naming names, to being very specific about the types of error and falsehood and evil and wickedness that is circulating amongst believers. When we get into the dangers here of the bad fruit that comes from bad trees, when we talk about enduring ridicule and persecution, 
for something simple like holding fast to the truth when the truth is not a popular position. We are going to need something stronger than willpower. We're going to need something stronger than just being clever with our arguments in order to endure and overcome. Our confidence needs to be anchored to something other than ourselves. And I think Jude knows this. It needs to be anchored to God's power and God's promises. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like Lazarus, Jesus has called us from our graves and we're called to, he continues, an inheritance. That inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is secure and those who have been born again, who by God's power, Peter continues, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, meaning God will bring us all the way to the end. Verse 6, Peter continues, in this, we're being born again in the sure promise of God's salvation, in this you rejoice. What are we rejoicing in? The sureness of God's promise to carry us all the way through. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, which in the time of Peter was, you know, death and imprisonment, things like that. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think Jude opens his letter like this because he knows for everything that lies in front of you, you're going to need this. You're going to need to know and have confidence in the sure promise and power of God who saved you and is holding you and loves you and is keeping you and will carry you all the way through. You need to know this. We need an anchor to the truth about God. The truth about his salvation of sinners and our identity and our security so that you and I might have courage to stand in the power of this Holy Spirit to contend for the gospel in the face of, uh, of a worldview, in the face of wolves who, as Jude says, they pervert the grace of God and deny our master and Lord Jesus. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept. So I pray this does two things. One, for any of us who have convinced ourselves that we're good with God and our reasoning for how we think, why we think we're okay is anything other than full faith in Jesus, if it's anything other than repenting of our sin and believing that Jesus' death is the substitute to pay for my sin and only in his resurrection can I have new and everlasting life, if our hope is anything other than that, then perhaps today is the day that Jesus is actually calling you from death to life. And I'd love to talk to you about that if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart and calling you to himself. That's the first thing. second thing is this. 
for my fellow disciples of Jesus, as Jude says, servants of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you are overwhelmed with the assurance of faith in God's sovereign grace. That it, that it messes with you. That it floors you a little bit. That you would not depend on anything else to make sure that you'll make it to the end, but that you would know that your faith rests entirely on God's work to keep you, holding you fast as you hold fast to Him. Then, then I think Jude's little blessing in verse 2 makes sense. Jude prays, and here's, here's where we'll close. Jude prays this, verse 2, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to you. All you who are called, beloved, and kept, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied. It would abound to you. Now, we could do a whole other sermon on, on mercy, peace, and love. I'm just going to leave it like this. Jesus is the mercy of God to humanity. Jesus is God's mercy made human. Jesus is the peace of God. Jesus breaks down all our division and makes us one in himself, as Ephesians 2 says, peace with God and peace with one another. So Jesus is the embodiment of peace. And as 1 John 4 tells us, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is incarnate love. And so Jude, I think, is praying in this little blessing in verse 2 that all that is in Christ Jesus would be multiplied to you. That you would be overwhelmed by all that Christ is and that all that you have now that you are hidden in him. Now this letter from Jude is absolutely a call to arms. It is absolutely a call to fight. It is absolutely a call to courage. Those are words we're going to see and use over the next four or five weeks. Hold fast, centered on the gospel, relying on his word as our standard and authority of truth in the face of all kinds of wickedness and evil and false teaching. It is absolutely a call to persevere, to overcome and to labor with joy in the work of making disciples. So I want us to hear and heed Jude's call to arms. And I want us to see that all of our doing is firmly anchored to our being. That we who are called, who are beloved, who are kept, are being called to hold fast and contend for the faith to the praise of God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your mercy and in your kindness and in your undeserved love, you have made for yourself a people who were not a people. Those who were under judgment and had not received mercy have not received mercy. That you have in your kindness given your very Son to be our propitiation, to cover us, to purchase us, 
to exchange his perfection for our wicked unrighteousness. I do pray that you would overwhelm us with the depth and assurance of your promises. That even today as we come to the Lord's table, that you'd move us past the familiar and the, the kind of the rote, the memory, the, what we're familiar with and the, the, the practice of it that we could kind of go through the motions and I pray that by your spirit that wouldn't happen. But gratitude and worship would well up in us afresh. To the one who calls us, to the one who loves us, and to the one who keeps us. I pray where there's blindness around our eyes, you'd peel it away. Where there's hardness creeping up around our hearts, that you would break it. And you'd release worship to the praise of your glory in your people as we remember and celebrate all that you've won, Jesus. Receive our worship, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.